I hope everybody's doing well. Hopefully everybody's staying safe, not getting sick. I have some interesting updates about the coronavirus for this week. It's been an interesting week for my area especially, but for everyone really. So I'm going to continue where we left off with last week's podcast with a little bit more information about the coronavirus, as well as some general information about vaccinations, as well as what we can look forward to with the coronavirus vaccine. So stay tuned for this week. Your prescription is to continue learning about the coronavirus. So let's start off with the update for the week. We're starting to see more places around the country shutting down in order to assist with social distancing. A lot of places are closing bars and restaurants and requiring that they do takeout only. I know in my area they actually close down pretty much any sit-down restaurant. Most of them are adjusting to this by doing takeout and delivery for most of their stuff. Perhaps the most interesting thing that we found this week with the coronavirus is a study from the New England Journal of Medicine that says that we may not be looking for all the right symptoms. We're starting to see an increase in cases where it's not mainly respiratory-based, but we're also seeing some more cases of body aches being the primary, as well as gastrointestinal. So my recommendation would maintain the same. If you think you may have it or you've been exposed to somebody that had it, the best thing to do is to contact your urgent care or your primary care physician if you're not showing a lot of symptoms. If you're noticing any severe shortness of breath, you're having trouble breathing, or if your fever goes over 103 or 104, that's the time that you should probably be calling the hospital to ask them for advice. So what does this mean going forward with the coronavirus? What this means is our current screening procedures are inadequate for pre-screening people that may have the disease. Up to this date, we've been looking for fever, cough, travel, and also contact with somebody with a confirmed case of COVID. This may mean that we need to start expanding our screening process to make sure that we're not exposing people to it by bringing them into medical facilities for testing if it's not necessary. There has been a jump in the out-of-office testing, and there are a couple places, even in my area, which is fairly new to the spread of the coronavirus, that are starting to do outpatient testing. This is still not necessarily recommended for people who are really sick because you're not going to get the full evaluation unless there's a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant present. Remember, one of the dangerous things about coronavirus is that it mimics the symptoms of other diseases. So we're starting to see people with the flu, people with pneumonia, people with bronchitis who think that they have it. Now, that's not necessarily saying that you shouldn't be checked for it. You just have to make sure that you're taking into account your risk factors for it. If you've been sitting in your house with no human contact for the past three weeks, chances are you don't have the coronavirus, and it might just be allergies. But this is something that we should take into accountability for the physicians, is we need to start looking for more than just respiratory symptoms. I don't know exactly the amount of patients that are presented with gastrointestinal symptoms because we haven't been testing those patients. It's more up to the physician or the nurse practitioner PA to do that. So the good news for the week with the coronavirus is that we're starting to see an expanded capability for testing. I know that I mentioned last week there was a PCR test approved by Thermo Fisher for use in the United States. Now PCR in a simple way just means really fast. So we get results back next day, or even sometimes the same day. So what this has done is it's actually opened up a door for more testing 
and more laboratories to run testing. So currently we had the CDC, LabCorp, and SonoraQuest doing the testing, with LabCorp saying that it would take up to six days to get results back. So in this format, we were telling people that they'd have to stay home and maybe think that they have symptoms for those six days. With the PCR testing, we can test them and the very next day tell them. The other good news about the PCR testing is it opens up the capability for us to use more test swabs. Right now, we're using something called universal viral transport medium, which is basically a fancy word for if it freezes with a virus, it doesn't kill the virus. With PCR testing, it's actually done quick enough that the virus stays intact for them to do the testing regardless of what it's transported in. So we're going to be able to use just salt water to transport the swabs to the laboratories because it doesn't need to be frozen. That was probably the biggest hurdle we had for testing for the coronavirus was the lack of testing supplies and also the delay in laboratory results coming through. So I do have to say that this is probably the most exciting thing for me personally that we've come across because it means we can start checking more people. Right now, the United States is in such bad shape with this because of the lack of testing. There's a lot of places that can't get the testing supplies, and there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable doing the testing because it may expose them to it. But I think it's better to know. I was telling my staff today that the best thing that we can do is know. If somebody comes in that door and we don't know they have coronavirus and we let them out without testing it, they're going to continue the spread of the vac. So the virus will continue to spread unless we can identify the individuals that have it so that we can quarantine those people. Since there isn't any treatment for it, well, okay, I'll take that back. There is some treatment for it, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But for right now, the best thing we can do is test people, understand that they have it, quarantine them, so that we can also see the spread of the virus, not just who has it, but where is it. Until we have that information, the CDC can't really do anything with closing down areas or with local treatments. On the back end of that, if the CDC doesn't know that someone was a confirmed case, they can't do follow-up testing. One day they're hoping to have a blood test, kind of like the one that I mentioned previously, but this one would be laboratory-based and therefore more accurate, that checks for the IgG and IgM of the virus. So basically what we're looking for is our body's reaction to the virus in both a current state and also a previous state with those. So IgG is IgGon. It's an antibody or our body's reaction from what we built up to it for a previous infection where IgM or Ig miserable, and by the way, those aren't technical terms. That's just the easiest way to remember it, is testing for current reactions or antibodies from the person. So without that information of who has it, the CDC can't do their 21-day follow-up testing. So while it is our responsibility to social distance and also prevent the spread, it's also our responsibility as medical professionals and even as people to understand the spread of the virus. Because if we had started this and we had had the information that we needed early on, we could have halted the spread of this rather than just trying to flatten the curve. It's great to flatten the curve, but the curve shouldn't even be there to begin with because we had this information ahead of time, but nobody was acting on it. So I think, if anything, this is a great example of how horrible we are at dealing with pandemics. 
And I think this is something that should definitely be revisited by medical professionals, by the government, by everybody, to see what we could do better. Because this is bad, but it could be worse. So next up, I wanted to talk about vaccines. So you may have heard that they're testing a coronavirus vaccine on some people at Kaiser Medical. Everybody's wondering why we don't have a vaccine out yet, and I'll let you know that vaccines are not the easiest thing to make. It's not like what you see in movies where they isolate the virus and make a vaccine the next day. There's a lot of testing, a lot of information that has to go into making a vaccine, and we have to make sure that it's safe for the general population. So rather than talk about the coronavirus specifically as far as vaccinations go, I wanted to talk a little bit about vaccinations in general. How do they do what they do? What are they made out of? Because that seems to be a common misconception with most people. So vaccinations actually started in the days of smallpox. The gentleman that was a physician at the time, and I'm not going to give you too much history, so don't worry, basically took some of the viral material from that and put it into somebody else. What that did is it gave the body a chance to create antibodies, to create general immune responses without getting the virus. So think of it this way. If you get stabbed with a knife, it hurts. You get stabbed with a knife. But take that same exact knife, dole down all the edges, and coat it in rubber, and then get stabbed with it. It might hurt a little bit, but it's not going to kill you. What that does is it creates the response from you to say, hey, there's a knife, that's going to hurt me, not necessarily, hey, there's a knife, that's why I'm dead. So that's what vaccines are basically trying to do. We're trying to train your immune system to see that knife and attack it before it becomes an issue. So there's a couple different types of vaccinations. One of the vaccinations we've been using for a really long time is a live virus. So basically what they do is they take a virus and they weaken it. So they're beating it down with antibiotics with antivirals, with time, with temperature, whatever it may be that they need to do, then they stabilize those so that they can be given to the person. Now, live vaccines will give you the best protection out of most of the vaccines that have been out for a while, but they're not necessarily the safest for people that have weak immune systems. Live vaccinations are actually not recommended for people on chemotherapy or people that are taking immune-reducing drugs in a large quantity because the chance of the person actually getting the virus or disease from the vaccine is not necessarily high, but it's worth taking into account. So we don't use live vaccines for as much, and we're starting to transition to some newer types of vaccines, which I'll talk about in a second. So the second type of vaccine, and the one that most people are familiar with, is an inactivated vaccine. So that's going to be like your flu shots, any type of yearly vaccine, your polio shots, hepatitis shots, rabies shots. Generally, these vaccines have a limited lifespan to them, not necessarily because of the inactivated status, but that is a part of it. Just for the flu shot, for example, it's because the strains change so frequently. So when we look at these vaccines, the way that they make them is a little interesting. A, an activated vaccine is grown on some type of media so for the general flu shot, they use eggs, which they're finding is not necessarily the most accurate way for us to do it, but in large-scale situations, it's the most reproducible. We're starting to see the transition with other shots, 
such as Shingrix, which is a shingles vaccine, and some of the newer flu shots that are cell-based vaccines, where they culture a cell from a different animal and grow it multiple times so that they can grow the virus on those. Then what they do is extract the virus from those cells and then break it. Not just beat it down, but completely break it up into this kind of slurry of bits and pieces of the virus, which are the antibodies. So basically you're giving your body an idea of what the virus looks like in a patchwork sense. So instead of giving them the actual virus and saying, hey, deal with this, you're giving your immune system little bits and pieces of the puzzle. So when they see the whole picture, they know to attack it. These viruses are very useful because they can be produced fairly quickly. They do have somewhat of a risk with the flu vaccine of some change in the viral strain based on the egg, but we are seeing some updates to that with things like the flu silvax and flu block, which flu block's a little bit different, but there are vaccines that are using cell cultures rather than egg cultures. The information's still kind of out there. We're not sure if it's that much better for you than not. But it is possible that we will be seeing a switch to those. I wouldn't worry the standard flu vaccine is still going to be mostly as effective, if not more effective, than the cell-based vaccines in the coming years because it is fairly new to us. But if there is an update and a feeling that everybody needs to switch to cell-based, we'll start telling everybody that they need to do cell-based. So now we look at the next type of vaccine, which is probably one of the most interesting ones because... It's very different from the other vaccinations that we use. So this is a group of multiple vaccinations. They're polysaturide, conjugate, recombinant, and subinant. These vaccines use a part of the virus in order to give you immunity to part of the virus, but the most specific and the worst part of it. So with these vaccines, they take the virus, they isolate certain parts, and then they replicate those certain parts. What this does is it gives you a very, very strong immune response to that part of the germ. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll target the receptors in the binding cells so that the virus can't attach to the proteins. So basically, it's like taking the sticky tabs off of Velcro. It, Velcro doesn't attach to each other if it doesn't have those little hooks. So basically what this vaccine is doing is it's sanding down the hooks on the Velcro on the virus so that it doesn't attach to the fluffy parts attached to your body. The fourth type of vaccine that we see fairly frequently, and this is very specific because it's only really to one thing. It's called a toxoid vaccine. So we only really use this for tetanus. I can't think of another vaccine off of the top of my head that uses a toxoid. It's just tetanus and diphtheria. What this does is it's using kind of like the previous format of vaccines where you have a targeted response, but this is just a targeted response at the toxin from the vaccine. This one's probably not going to be increasing in popularity because it's only used for the tetanus vaccine, to my knowledge, and I might be wrong on that, but that's the only one I've ever seen it with. So this one's pretty rare. The thing that we're going to be seeing a lot further is recombinant vaccines, which are targeting that Velcro part, and also DNA-based vaccines. So that's why I said the flu block's a little bit different than the other cell-based, 
There are some vaccines now where they're actually using DNA to create them. The process is very complicated, and I have to admit they haven't released a whole lot of information on the process, so I wouldn't be able to give you that much information, but if it becomes more common, I definitely will. With this, it creates a very accurate representation of the virus to your body or the antibodies to your body so that you can create a really strong reaction. So we can go back to that previous knife analogy. This isn't taking a different knife and sanding it down and telling your body, hey, this is a knife, don't let it stab you. This is taking the same knife that's stabbing everybody and doling it and then trying to stab you. So it's a little bit more accurate. Once again, we're going to need further testing in this area for us to tell if it's more advisable than anything else. The good news is, is that this may lead to faster production of vaccines. And that's pretty exciting. Now, as far as the coronavirus vaccine goes, I don't know what format they're using for the vaccination because they haven't necessarily came out and said it outright, at least from a reputable news source. And there's also a couple people working on a vaccine. So the reason it takes such a long time to do a vaccine is you have to understand the virus first in order to create either the DNA-based or cell-based or even the inactivated vaccines. So just recently, we grew cultures of the virus which are not easy to do. And that's probably one of the biggest things that causes a delay. With the flu season, we know it's coming. And as soon as they know we have production facilities set up in order to do those viral cultures for them to then break apart the virus and give it to us. With the coronavirus, we just recently started growing cell cultures of the virus. So the availability of the vaccine is not likely going to be there for a while because it takes a really long time even for the flu vaccine to come through. Like right now, we're ordering flu vaccines for next year's season or for this, well, this year's season, but the end of the year. So it's March, and we're already telling them how many of the vaccines we need for August and September. So that's why it's going to take a while for this one, especially with the testing that has to go into it. Because the coronavirus is dangerous, we definitely want a vaccine, but it's not something that is population-ending, They'd rather take their chances with making sure the vaccine is safe, reproducible, and effective rather than rush it out and have the possibility of causing a lot of negative side effects to everybody. So that's one of the reasons why we don't have a vaccine yet. The second reason is just time. We don't have enough time for them to grow the amount of cells that they would need to make these vaccines and then they'd have to ship them. But even before that, we still need the FDA clearance for the vaccine, which takes an acceptable amount of time in order for testing to make sure that there's no negative side effects from it. We don't want people dying from a vaccine that's supposed to keep them healthy. So right now, I don't really expect there to be a vaccine for a little while. That being said, if there is, I'm hoping they have the safety information to back it up because I don't know if many people are going to be recommending getting the vaccine until it's had some time. I can give the example of the shingles vaccine that recently came out, the Shingrix. The information they gave us at the start of it was actually pretty frightening for side effects, and we weren't really sure if people were going to want to get the vaccine. The good news of it is, is that it's very protective. 
The previous vaccine had a fairly low rate of prevention, but this one's up there in almost the 90% range, which is pretty significant for any vaccination. So you have to take that risk versus benefit. If we have people that are at high risk for the coronavirus, maybe it will be worth doing the vaccine, but maybe not. So that one's going to be something that we'll be revisiting at a later time. I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of information about the manufacturing of vaccines and how they make the different vaccines. They don't really tell you a whole lot when they give it to you. They just say, hey, this is your pneumonia shot. They don't tell you, well, this is the Pneumovax 23. It's an inactivated cell. They don't. So this is what I wanted to explain to you. And if you have any questions about vaccines in general, definitely let me know. Over the years, I've got a pretty good database of information about a lot of different vaccines. I will say this right now, vaccines do not cause autism. Vaccines cause living people. So in true Redditor fashion, I would like to end this podcast with a too-long-didn't-listen format for anybody that decided they didn't want to hear me ramble for this entire time. So the updates for the week. We're starting to see more coronavirus in the southwestern United States. Hard to say whether that's just because the testing is more available or if we're starting to have more cases. Probably a little bit of both. We do have an update to the testing capability for PCR testing, which just means really fast. The good news is this not only gives us faster test results, but it also reduces the requirements for the testing materials so that we can run more in a day. Some laboratories are saying they can run up to 8,000 tests per day on the new PCR machine through Thermo Fisher. There was also an update to vaccinations. The coronavirus vaccine is being tried out at Kaiser. Chances are we're not going to see anything very soon. I'd go through the different types of vaccinations and how they make them. Basically, it's either by weakening the virus, breaking down the virus, or breaking down the virus's Velcro in order for the body to gain response to that. So, all in all, this week has been really interesting. We have seen an update from the New England Journal of Medicine that the coronavirus may not be only upper respiratory. We may have to take into account not just coughs and chest pain, but also body pain and gastrointestinal or stomach issues. So we may end up changing our screening procedure, depending, because right now we're only looking for coughs, fever, and travel, or exposure to somebody with a known case of coronavirus. So there'll be more to come on that one fairly soon. In the meantime, stay healthy, wash your hands, eat your vegetables, listen to your mother, unless she's mean, get plenty of sleep, and we'll see you next time.